Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalm, Psalms, Psalm 1. As you're turning in the book to the book of Psalms, you know, most believers, I believe, what they were asked, desire a genuine, uh, real, authentic relationship with Christ. I believe that's the desire of of every believer, every Christian desires to truly know God and to have a relationship with God. It's interesting that God has certainly given us 66 books, but within those 66 books, there is one particular book, if you will, that God has given to us that helps us to perhaps connect us relationally uh, to God in, a, in an intimacy that is uh, maybe more so than other, other books of the Bible, certainly the entire Word of God. I'm not diminishing that by any means. But the book of Psalms is unique in that it, it really reveals the emotions and heart of a person who is hungry and seeking after God. Uh, if you, I'm sure, if you, even if you just know the 23rd Psalm, some of the familiar psalms, you'll know that the book of Psalms is at times uh, very raw, very real, uh, very honest. At times there's questioning, God, why are you doing what you're doing? Uh, God, why have you abandoned me? It's very real. And so the book of Psalms invites us to have this, uh, these words that God has given to us uh, to connect us in growing our spiritual life. And that's, that's really important because there's a lot of counterfeit false spirituality in our, in our day and in our culture. And so an invitation to how can I genuinely grow in godliness, not just in knowledge and theology, but in what way can I connect and commune with God on a regular basis and even in a way that takes me deeper than where I am at now. And I hope that every Christian wants to go further than you are right now. That's the work of the Spirit in your life that's wanting you to grow and to uh, know God and, and to walk with God. And, and that should be, again, something that every Christian desires. The book of Psalms, somebody uh, called the book of Psalms God's handbook for the heart. I like that. God's handbook for the heart. As I said, the book of Psalms gets very real over heart issues. It's not just uh, re- telling of, of history or doctrine, and certainly there's history and, and doctrine in the book of Psalms, but it really uh, enables us to, God has given us, if you could say it this way, God has provided us His words that we can speak back to him. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes when you don't know what to say, what to pray, how I feel, I can't put it into words, isn't it amazing that God has given us words, his words, that we can speak back to him, that we can uh, walk in the, in, the, uh, in the footsteps, if you will, of, of David as he penned uh, intimate words of encountering God and intimate words of failure with God and intimate words of frustration with God. I'm, I'm sure nobody here ever gets frustrated uh, with God or willing to admit it. But in the book of Psalms, there's psalms that we sing, there's psalms that address our fears, that address our faith, our joys, all those things together. Um, I kind of paraphrased it earlier, but uh, St. Athanasius was a 4th century church father. The church fathers, if you ever hear that term, they are usually uh, the names or the titles attributed to those who followed the apostles, the church fathers in church history. Many of them were actual disciples of the, uh, of the, the, the apostles themselves. And Athanasius made this statement. He said, most of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak 
for us. And Athanasius uh, wrote a letter to a young Christian who was seeking his counsel. Athanasius was a bishop of Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, and he was a godly man, and God used in many of the formations of the, of the uh, pillars of the church there in the fourth century. And a friend or somebody had written to him wanting advice on how to grow spiritually. And without reading you the quote, I'll just kind of paraphrase it. Athanasius said, you need to pour yourself into the Psalms. And he likened it this way, and I'll kind of put it in my words. He said, every book of the Bible is like a garden. And every book of the Bible is like a garden that has its unique fruit that it grows. But the Psalms is not just an individual garden. The Psalms is an entire field by which the other individual gardens grow. So in the Psalms, there's the totality of knowing and experiencing the fullness of God's person and revelation that is unique to the Word of God, to all the Scripture. So open your Bibles, if they're not already there, to Psalm, and we're going to look this morning at Psalm 1. Psalm 1. In Psalm chapter 1, the title that I've given to it, that is pretty much from the first verse, the title this morning, The Blessed Life, The Blessed Life. And in a moment, we're going to read Psalm 1. But in Psalm 1, uh, it talks about the blessing of God. How is a person blessed by God? You know, you uh, probably have heard... uh, and the story that ends, and they lived happily ever after. Now, most of us have grown to the point that we know in life that isn't always and usually the case as though life is at some point totally free from heartache, suffering, trial, whatever you want to put on it. Life has its problems, but yet... In spite of the complexities of life, we want to be happy. In fact, even as Americans, the pursuit of happiness is embedded in the Declaration of Independence. You remember the preamble? I I actually remember having to memorize it in fifth grade, but I wrote it down. I couldn't tell you what it was now, uh, at least accurately. But you remember it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. So even as Americans, we have it embedded in in our right that we should be happy or at least should have the right to pursue happiness. And people want happiness. And you remember, if, you're a, if you remember uh, the country song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, and you get bonus points if you know who that is. It was Johnny Lee, a one-hit wonder. But anyway, uh, that's just a little free trivia. But that's what we do. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking to be satisfied. To find that, that pot of gold. To pot, find that... That place, that job, that person, that mate, whatever it is that is going to bring the fulfillment of all my hopes and dreams, and then I'll finally reach the place of happiness. And oftentimes that fails multiple times. You remember the quote I often use by St. Augustine that says, Our hearts are restless till they find rest in Thee. We are created for God. Happiness, whether Whatever the pursuit is, if it leaves God out, will never bring the satisfaction that God has built in us. And so our desire for happiness apart from God is never going to satisfy. And so when we talk about happiness, if you ask somebody, you know, what do you want in life? They, you know, I just want to be happy. But, but if we want to have happiness, the blessing of God, blessing, uh, then we need to make sure that we're defining happiness by the way that God defines happiness. What is, jo- what is happiness? 
Well, I know what happiness is. You know, happiness might be getting that, that uh, close parking place at Publix or Target or wherever you're going or Walmart. You know, that we, we have such trivial views that if happiness is, you know, I can just take a nap for, a, for an hour without disturbance or whatever it is. Well, hopefully you have bigger ad, uh, aspirations than, than, than mine. But anyway, uh, but we want to be happy, but, but as I said, but happiness that the world gives us is always bringing it to us in counterfeit bills, isn't it? So now to look in your scriptures to Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to read... It'll be on the screen, but I do hope you bring your own copy of the Scriptures with you. But we're going to read it. It's only six verses, but we're going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it and hear what the Word of the Lord tells us and counsels us about the blessed life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable, Lord, in your sight. Father, give us your counsel through your inspired word today as we have heard and read in this place, in this assembly today, the very words of the living God. So let us give attention, God, to these words this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first verse of Psalm 1 begins with the word, blessed. Now, scholars who know Hebrew, and I do not know Hebrew, uh, speak of that Hebrew word as a plural of intensity, and this is where it is helpful. Steve Lawson, in his commentary, gives us this help on that word. It may be rendered, according to Lawson, oh, how truly happy is the person, or oh, the happiness of the person. So the word happy is not a is not a, a irreverent word uh, from blessed because in fact that's really what it means. It's, it speaks of happiness. The word the word stems from a verb meaning to go on or advance. Now if you want to advance in the fullest measure of happiness, the psalmist is going to tell you how. Tradition says that David penned these words, but this is one of two psalms they sometimes refer to as orphan psalms in that we don't exactly know who the author is. Tradition, as I said, uh, attributed it to David, and so we'll just leave it with that. It's not worth starting a new church over, okay? Uh, but notice we're going to notice three things on the blessed life, about the blessed person, things that we who desire to have the blessing, the happiness of God, need to know or should know. Number one, the blessed person knows that there are things to avoid. Okay, verse one, true happiness is not found in a life that leaves God out. True happiness is not. This is a negative principle. We'll look at two others, but this is a negative principle, and that true happiness is not found in a life that leaves God out. Verse 1 of chapter 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's three ways that we can leave God out 
of our life. You leave God out by walking in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 1, verse 1. You leave God out of your life, you won't be blessed if you're walking in the counsel of the wicked. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked? The word wicked in the Hebrew, again, means to loose or is out of joint. Something that is loose or out of joint. And modern vernacular refers to a person who hangs loose about God. They're not stable. Uh, He doesn't take God seriously. He doesn't uh, regard God's Word seriously. And there's different ways that we can, again, uh, be loose about the way that we handle or take God's Word. Uh, One of those ways that we can walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked is that we deny the sufficiency of Scripture for dealing with the problems of the soul. It's always the Bible plus something else. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that the Word of God is God-breathed and that the man of God, the woman of God, can be fully equipped by the Word of God. We can also uh, take the counsel of the wicked when we exalt the pride of man that takes away from the glory of God. You see, the Bible, the Word of God, humbles the pride of man and exalts the glory of God. That's why some people, uh, you know, when they start hearing things about Christ's demands of our life, the Lordship of Christ, they're like, whoa, 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 I don't want that. I don't want that. I, I, want, I want a way to have better finances and have a happy marriage and to raise my kids, but I really don't want somebody taking and controlling my life. That's what we mean by the Lordship of Christ. And so the Word of God, we walk in the counsel of the wicked when we allow ourselves to have our pride exalted that removes the glory of God. You see, the world's wisdom, listen, the world's wisdom builds the self and minimizes the necessity of our need before God. And then we walk in the counsel of the wicked when we exalt the pride of man. Another way we walk in the counsel of the wicked is when we deny or minimize the need for the necessity of the cross of Christ by asserting our inherent basic goodness or downplaying the extent or impact of sin or the fall. The Bible teaches us that we are all born into spiritual darkness and death. That's the testimony of Scripture. We are born by nature. We are sinners. None of us could or even would seek after God if God had not sought after us. So the cross humbles human pride and wisdom and exalts the majesty of Christ, that without God's intervention in my life to know Him, I am without hope. The counsel of the wicked can also imply that is a denial of God's moral absolutes and substitutes human standards and human wisdom as our baseline of goodness. We're not interested in what the absolute truth of God's Word says or who God is in His holiness, but we just kind of say, well, you know what, that just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem fair. I don't think that if I was God, and and I'm glad you're not, and you're glad that I'm not, but we don't understand or we minimize, rather, God's holiness and God's righteousness, and we want, we create ourselves a God made in our own image based on our own standards of good, bad, right, or wrong. It's a fluctuating standard. Worldly wisdom rationalizes away, rationalizes away God's absolutes. There are no absolutes. It's all part of the cultural indoctrination we need to be free, be freed from. Have you noticed that the more that people desire to free themselves and unshackle themselves of the Word of God and what God's standards are, the more in bondage people are? 
The counsel of the wicked also can focus on pleasing self rather than on pleasing God and others. The world's wisdom counsels you to live first for you. Hey, nobody is going to look out for number one except... Are you all alive? Are you all alive? Do we need to sing and do a Jericho march? I mean, is that what we got to do? Huh? We got some dry bones in here, huh? Hey, nobody's going to look out for number one except what? Number one, meaning me, moi. I'm number, no, 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 no. And you know what? Even Christianese, modern American Christianese, gives us this idea that you can't really love God unless you love yourself. That's not scriptural. So you leave God out by walking in the counsel of the wicked. We're still in verse 1. But he also says in verse 1 that you leave God out by standing in the path of sinners. The path of sinners refers to their way of life, their behavior. To stand in the path of sinners means involvement with sinful behavior or sinful lifestyles that God's Word is clear for us to stay away from. You know, the word sin or, uh, is, is the root of it, speaks of missing the mark. It's an archery uh, term that, you know, to shoot the arrow is to miss the bullseye. It's to miss the mark. Sin, we will never be able to hit the mark because of sin. We miss the mark. We miss the standard that God has set. We are sinful. We are sinners. And we, don't, we are told that the blessed life does not stand in the way, does not participate. A born-again believer, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creation in Christ. Now hear me, okay? Sometimes people will say, well, the problem with Christians is when they get saved... They lose all their non-Christian friends. But here's a revelation. You should lose a lot of your non-Christian friends. Now, I'm being honest with you. You need to cut them loose. Your relationship to them has changed. Your relationship to them is now one who is praying and seeking to be a light of Christ as a new creation, and praying that God will draw them like he drew you to salvation. But some of the most tragic circumstances is when a person who professes faith, and they start going back with those same people, start getting into those same habits, those same patterns, and then where are they? You know, there was a term some of you may grow up with, and you might have a visceral reaction to this term. And I don't want to have you have any convulsions or anything. But if you grew up in some circles, you know that the term separation became a distorted term, unfortunately. But let me tell you, there is a biblical separation between sin and saint. And the saint, the man or woman of God, does not stand under the influence of the ungodly. If you want to live a blessed life, if you want to experience the joy and experience of knowing God, in many cases, you are going to have to get some new friends and have some new alliances. And the last way we avoid of leaving God out, according to verse 1. We're still in verse 1. You leave God out by sitting in the seat of scoffers or mockers. Scoffers, the ESV, who have rejected God's Word. They seek to, you know, every once in a while, uh, I'll have different news sources and things that come across and some about Christian news. And there's a term that has become somewhat popularized in 
the Christian world of so-called former uh, celebrity Christians who are now deconstructing. Is anybody ever familiar with that term? They're deconstructing. How many of you have never, don't even know what I'm talking about? They're deconstructing. They profess that they once walked with Christ, but now they become enlightened, and they are now going through a process where they are deconstructing, they are disengaging from those fallacy Christian beliefs. And there are some that, you know, may be well known to others, and they get a lot of attention. Let me tell you something. You remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 19? This isn't new. 1 John chapter 2, 19, I, think it, I don't know if it's on the screen, but you'll be familiar with it. It says, John says about those who deconstructed in his day, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, persevered. But they went out, in other words, they deconstructed themselves out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. They don't want God interfering in their life. In fact, I read recently, seems like it kind of comes in waves. You'll get two or three in a, in a pile of news, you know, of so-called celebrities. And one was this week, a pastor, you probably have never heard of him, I never heard of him, and I think I'm pretty up on my celebrity pastors. <laughs> I have all their trading cards. <clears throat> Extra points for torn and skinny jeans, but but one that I was not familiar with, but he was labeled as a pastor of a mega church, and he now has deconstructed and abandoned the Christian faith. But when you dig a little deeper, you find out he was involved in adultery for multiple years, and oftentimes this deconstruction and this enlightened now view of truth that I don't have to be shackled down by the archaic, ancient scriptures, oftentimes is nothing more than a smokescreen to cover justification for living in sin. Pure and simple. You leave God out by sitting in the seat of scoffers. Note, I want you to, before we leave verse 1, I want you to notice something right here in this verse. As the old Puritan would say, it's pregnant with truth. In verse 1, notice the degrees of departure from God. Okay? And they'll be, these will be highlighted. Notice in verse 1, the words walk, stand, and sit. If you mark in your Bibles, these are good things you ought to mark. First you walk, you're still moving, but you're moving in the wrong direction. Then you stand, you're lingering in sin. And finally you sit, you're at ease in the company of scoffers. Look at the next three words. Wicked, sinners, scoffers. First you're with the wicked those who hang loose about God. Then you're with sinners, those who openly, pridefully violate God's commands by joyfully missing the mark. Those are Romans 1, folks. You can read that. And then you're with who? You're with the scoffers, those who openly mock and reject the truth. But look at the, other, the last three. Counsel way or path and seat. First you listen to counsel. You begin thinking wrong thoughts. Then you stand in the path. You engage in wrong behavior. And finally you sit in the seat. You belong to the wrong crowd and have adopted the fatal attitude of the scoffer and the mocker. And then Satan has you exactly where he wants you. You see, there's two lessons. Guard your mind, 
Austin quoted from the scripture in, uh, I think it was Colossians uh, 3. Guard your mind and guard your friends. Who are you walking along with? Howard Hendricks, who was a mentor, some of you know who Chuck Swindoll is, and he was a mentor to many other people, uh, taught at Dallas Seminary for a number of years. But Howard Hendricks made this statement. Listen to it. He said, the two factors which will most influence where you will be 10 years from now are the books you read and the friends you make. What are you, what are you taking in and who are you walking with? Well, the psalmist doesn't end with that negative. But he tells us, secondly, not only is the person, the blessed person knows that there are things to avoid, but he says, secondly, the blessed person knows that there are things to acquire. There are things to acquire. True happiness is found in a life built on God and His Word. It says His delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, but, and on His law He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There's two parts to this. There's a responsibility, and then there's the result. You do the responsibility, you take the responsibility, you get the result. You go to college four years, you have a big debt. No, you go to college four years, you have a degree, all right? You, you take the responsibility, you get the result. So he says the responsibility, in verse 2, our responsibility is to delight in and meditate on God's Word continually. That's our, uh, that's our responsibility. Again, uh, to pull from smarter people than I am, the word that is used here for delight in this passage is also used in other Old Testament scriptures that speak of a delight of a man who has a delight towards his wife. That kind of delight. Now guys, when you were uh, courting your wife, that's a good old term, isn't it? Courting, right? It doesn't mean you were taking into court. It means you were dating, all right? In case some of you are not up on, on those things and don't watch Little House on the Prairie. But anyway... Uh, you, were, you were in love with your spouse, and you know what? You rearranged your schedule, your time. Somehow you could stay out to all hours and still get up and go to work at 6.30 in the morning. Now, 9 o'clock comes around, and you're staggering into bed, right? Uh, in other words, it, you delighted in her. You delighted in time with her. And so it's interesting that that is the word that God in his providence chose that we are to delight and take joy in the word of God, that we are to delight in God's word. Do we delight? Is it a joy or is it a drudgery? We just kind of drudge our way through. Yeah, I'm reading the Bible through a year. I'm just checking my check off. I'm going to want... I want that little certificate. You know, I'm checking it off. There's no delight. There's no joy. The Bible says that the responsibility that we are to have is that we are to delight. Our affections should be excited about hearing and opening the Word of God. And then, of course, Austin addressed this last week with the word meditate. Talking about the, chat, the, the cow chewing its cud which is a very gross process when you pour your glass of milk to think about that whole thing. But nevertheless, that word meditate of how the cow chews the cud, swallows, regurgitates, chews it a little more. Not a delight you. Am I getting hungry right now? Um, but that meditation, we chew on the Word of God. We meditate on the Word of God. We delight in it. We take time to ponder the Word of God. We take time to read it slowly. You've heard me say this many times. Don't get into trying to so despair. Read less and understand more. It is better to spend the entire year reading the Gospel of John and knowing what the Gospel of John says than to trying to drudge through and it's 
four minutes before midnight on December 31st, and you're getting in those last chapters before the book of, you know, in the book of Revelation, and you can say, okay, I did it, but I have no clue of what I've been reading for almost a year. Because it's just been a task. There's been no delight. So the responsibility is to delight in and meditate on God's Word continually. And that's the intake of our mind. As Again, the quote Colossians 3. I think it'll be on the screen. I think I have it in this context. About that if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. You see, that's a responsibility. Set your minds. I don't know why I have this picture. Some of you will know this, and depending on your age, you will really know it, is when you had a television set that had rabbit ears. How many of you grew up with a television set that had rabbit ears? All right, now some generate have no, I mean, there was literally very little, no. But you, and, and you, you were the remote control of your household. Tim, get up and change the channel. Or you have to adjust the rabbit ears. See, my dad was too cheap to put a nice antenna on the house, so we had these rabbit ears. And the high technology is to put foil at the end of them. That was when you got in. That's when you got the Internet, kids. That's how we got the Internet. We had to have that foil on, the, on, the, uh, on those rabbit ears. But when I see that, I think when it says set, Set, that means that word I love, calibrate, set, that's a deliberate action to make sure that I'm getting and I'm tuning and I'm listening accurately. And that my mind is set, that's a determination to turn off the noise of the television and open God's word and to read the eternal good news of God that's going to feed my soul, to take delight and meditate on the word of God. So what is the result Verse 3, verse 3 is the result. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, the psalmist describes the person who delights in God's word as a tree planted by streams of water. The picture, the metaphor, is a tree that has been deliberately cultivated, surrounded by uh, streams that are going to feed the root systems with a continual supply of water, irregardless of what is happening on the outside, the weather system, because the root system has irrigated canals that are having a continual flow of water. So whether there's storms or there's drought or whatever, that tree planted by the, the streams of water is continually being fed in its root system, and regardless, irregardless of what's happening on the outside, it is bearing fruit. And so the Christian can withstand droughts, pandemics, whatever it is, and bear fruit. Fruit is the term of manifestation of, of inward health, of growth, for the believer, the fruit of the Spirit. You're familiar with that. In all that they do... They prosper. They prosper. Now, you know, we hear that in America. We immediately think of financial prosperity and material prosperity. But I think what he's talking I don't think. I know what he's talking about is what 3 John verse 2 says. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Just because you have material prosperity does not mean you have the blessing of God. And just because you don't have material prosperity doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. But you know, if you're honest, and I think you're an honest people, if you look at Psalm 1, you're like, well, really? Because, you know, we all... No people that seem to be genuinely happy, content, prosperous, and they're doing just fine without God. Right? And then you may know people that profess to be godly people, 
faithful people. And their life is like a train wreck. Well, the psalmist helps us in this last principle. Thirdly, the blessed person knows there are things to anticipate. True happiness is found in a life that takes eternity into account. Listen to the words of verse 4 through 6. He just got through talking about the blessed man, the blessed person. But he says, verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, the psalmist compares the wicked with the righteous. The wicked with the righteous. The righteous is like a sturdy tree, rooted, firm, fruitful. The wicked are like chaff from the wheat, rootless, weightless, useless. But see, that's not, that's not the way, you know, that's not the way man, we, we view things. But he's saying, but it's not our viewpoint, but we need to make sure we see, have God's viewpoint. From our viewpoint, it seems that many who leave God outside of their life are glamorous, powerful, exciting people, living exciting life. That's what it seems like. Seems like, you know, they hop from one scandal to another and land on their feet better than they left it. That sometimes seems the way it looks. But look at verse 6. For the Lord knows. (laughs) Do you see that? But what is God's view? God's view takes eternity into account. This is not all there is. God's view takes eternity into account. He says, those who leave me out, they are like chaff. They have no substance. They may be great in the world's eyes, but before God, they'll be blown away like chaff in the final judgment. Look at verse 5. Go back to verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. That means they won't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Right? Romans 1, they will be without excuse. They won't be able to withstand the judgment that God, in His Word, will impose those who reject Him, those who repudiate Him. They will not be in heaven. They will not stand in in the congregation of the righteous. Even though it may look like at times that things seem to be the very opposite, the Bible says that God knows. God is acquainted with. Remember uh, Matthew 7, where Jesus said, there will be those who come to me in that day, speaking about a final day of judgment. And they will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did all these things, and then the judgment of Christ will say, but I never knew you. It didn't mean that he didn't know there existed. I mean, that there was, n- there was no relationship. I never knew you in that, in that relational, redemptive way. The wicked, the Bible says, will be condemned to eternal punishment. And Revelation 21.8 says it will be in a lake of fire. Yes, Revelation 21.8. Look at it. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We don't like talking about judgment. All dogs go to heaven. That's our theology in America. 
right? But the psalmist in Psalm 1 says that the way to blessing is through the path of righteousness. Now here's our problem. Outside of Christ, we have no righteousness. We lack righteousness. But God has taken care of that. In that, He has given Christ, who is our righteousness. Romans 3, verse 21 through 24. But now, and that now doesn't have the weight unless you understand what it... Paul has front-loaded Romans with in chapters 1 and 2 and partially of chapter 3 about the total despair and depravity of the human condition. And so when he says, but now, that's a good but now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law because law-keeping, you don't gain righteousness. So there has to be another way. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the testify about Christ, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned, all have missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how can lost men and women claim the blessing of Psalm 1? The answer is to be in the one who is the blessed one, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the blessed one. He is the one who perfectly delights in the will and the word of God. To be in Christ is to receive the blessing and to walk in the blessing of God. It's only in Christ that we receive forgiveness of sins from the one who was made to be sin, who did not know sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? The path is through the cross. The path is through the cross of Jesus Christ. To know Christ, the way of blessing for us is exclusively and only through Jesus Christ. You see, every person here this morning needs to ask the question, because the psalmist talks about two paths. You have the path of the blessed and the path of the wicked. And every person here needs to ask themselves, what path am I on? Have I entered through the narrow gate that leads to the path of the godly? Or... As Jesus said, am I traveling the broad, wide road that is headed for destruction? Those are two questions every person here, every person listening needs to ask for themselves. If you say that you're walking the path of righteousness, then that brings some questions to determine the genuineness of that profession of faith. Do you have a delight for God? Do you have a joy for God? Do you have a delight to do His will? Do you have a delight for His Word? Are you living a life in which you are a steward as a servant to serve others because of the Christ servant life in you? You want to imitate Christ and give your life in serving others. You're no longer living for yourself. Are there evidences? Are there evidences? Are you... Are you more godly in your home with your wife and your kids? I'm not talking about perfection. But if somebody could look at your life, would they see evidences of the new birth? Would they see traits that are Christ-like? Or would they see the old model repainted, new tires but still the clunker bumping down the road with sin. We are a new creation in Christ. Our whole study of 1 John 
on assurance. We talked about those fruits, those evidences to, that, that, again, were not means of trying to say, am I perfect? There's only one who's perfect. But I, am I in living presently, right now, not what I did when I was 10 years old at the Baptist VBS? But am I presently, right now, living and loving the Lord Jesus Christ? And that my desire, imperfect, but my desire, given by the Spirit of God, because it's not in me and it wasn't natural to me, but God took an angry, bitter, mad, mean, dog-kicking, drunken, whatever words and terms you want to put on it, and He turned you into a sweet, kind, loving, gentle, compassionate follower of Jesus. How does that happen? How do you take a Paul, the apostle, who went from obsession of wanting to chase down these Christians and put their whole families in jail and perhaps even kill the leaders? How do you take somebody that was obsessed to giving his life for these very people? How do you take a Peter who denied Jesus three times, committed the same sin as Judas, denied Jesus, and yet on the day of Pentecost, what do we see? We see a man of spirit-filled power preaching the gospel. How do you explain that? You can't except that Jesus Christ changes lives. I love the scripture in Revelation that they overcame him how? Two ways. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb. We overcame the enemy by the cross. That's it. And the word of my testimony is how that cross... These are my words. This is my commentary on that verse. All right, so it's in my study Bible that I'm working on, okay? The word of my testimony is that application of what was done on that cross into my life. That Jesus Christ saved me, set me apart, and I am His and He is mine. That's the only way you and I will ever know the happiness and the joy and the blessing that God invites us to. All of the roads are dead ends. The wages of sin... Payment of sin is always in counterfeit dollars. Know Christ. Live for Christ. Come to Christ. Give your life for Christ. Invest your life in Jesus today. Let's pray.